I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. The apostles Peter and Paul, or excuse me, Peter and John, were on their way to the temple to pray one normal day in Jerusalem, as they'd done many times. Unbeknownst to them, attending to this very routine exercise of grace will result in a life-changing encounter for a crippled man. The consequences of this miraculous event will precipitate an epic showdown, a showdown with the civic leaders and the religious leaders of that day. This conflict we're going to see with the church and civil and religious powers exposes what I consider to be the great conflict of history. It anticipates something. It anticipates what the church is about to encounter as they enter into a very stormy relationship with Jerusalem and Rome. Raises some interesting questions for us today, and I, I want us to uh, allow the, this text to inform how is it that we are going to respond in tempestuous times, in the storms and trials of our day. And we see it immediately, don't we? We see conflicts stirring in our own culture. Right now, we see a pandemic, and pandemics put the whole world on edge, and, and there's a lot of opinions out there, and we can quibble about the cause, we can quibble about the numbers, but I hope we've, we're getting the, the big point, and I hopefully a redemptive point, of just how fragile our life is that one tiny little invisible germ can bring the whole world to its knees. May God speak to us in that. And we've seen it, right? We've seen the risks to life and health, to our jobs, to our incomes. Some people are losing their businesses. Not happening to just us, but to our loved ones. And these are very real trials we're in. In the midst of this, as if that wasn't enough, we have the larger cultural uh, convulsions around things of so-called social justice and race. And I'm here to assure you, though, that God was not caught unaware and that God has given us everything we need in order to face this crisis in this his word. Can I get an amen from the Presbyterians out there? Okay, help me Presbyterians. I'm going to go Pentecostal on you because I'm fired up about this. In the all-wise providence of God, and for the good of the church and for His glory, the early church was brought forth in a time of adversity. There was no silver spoon in the infant church's mouth. There was no cozy little nursery for the little infant church to grow up in. Ten waves of persecution sought to extinguish the church and the gospel before it could set the world ablaze. But Christ's church could not and cannot be stopped by his enemies, even enemies as formidable as the Roman Empire. In the book of Acts, we will see how the church responds to these threats. Threats much more pressing, frankly, than the ones we're facing. Threats over persecution, threats over imprisonment, and threats of the very loss of life. Remember, as we fuss about the frustrations of accommodating the pandemic and all these other things, that 11 of the 12 apostles 
we're called upon to bear witness to Christ unto death. Thankfully, none of us here have been required to bear witness to the Christ of Christ to the point of shedding blood or laying down our lives. But what we do see in the book of Acts and in church history, one very small, fiercely devoted group of people who were devoted to Christ could endure wave after wave after wave of persecution and in the midst of that turn the world upside down. They had no armies, they had no billionaire backing them, but they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. The scriptures tell us that there's great heroes of the faith and that this world is not even worthy of them. I wonder sometimes as we sit here in our cozy little American church, whether we are worthy of the sacrifice that has been made that has brought us to this point to enjoy all the blessings that we enjoy. So with that in mind, let us look then at the example of the early church and how they responded to threats. And may God, the Spirit, inspire and teach us how to pray in the midst of threats. First, we see, if you're keeping notes, there was the threat to the mission. We see that in Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 23. It says, when they were released, that is the apostles, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So let's just back up, you know, we're kind of at the end of the story. What precipitated all of this? As we saw in Acts 3, Peter and John were on their way to go to prayer. And on the way, they hear a crippled beggar crying out for alms. It's very likely that that guy had been there all the time. You see the guys that work the, the signs on the freeway exits. You know what I'm talking about. They know they're there. Why? Because it works. And so that guy was there. Why? Because he was making dough. I mean, he was getting his alms, and he'd probably been there a long time. Okay. I think the apostles had no idea. This cripple certainly had no idea what was about to happen. God was going to glorify himself in a spectacular way. And just one aside, don't miss this. The apostles, what were they doing? They were just going to prayer. They were attending to their spiritual duties. And don't be surprised as we're just going about doing what we ought to do in what may seem like a very routine fashion that God's going to show up and glorify himself. So we hear the man's plea for alms, and, and Peter famously responds and says, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this 40-year-old man, who had been crippled since birth, is instantly healed, and then starts running around the temple, jumping and leaping and praising God. So this answers another question, does it? Doesn't it? Yes, God does turn some people into Pentecostals. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was a cheap. In the midst of the commotion, then Peter has to stand up and give an explanation of what's happening. And he declares it's nothing less than the work of Christ, the author of life. By the way, the one you had a hand in killing... And he says this, but God, having raised up his servant, this is Acts 3.26, 
God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This undeniable miracle, coupled with Peter's unflinching preaching, constituted a threat to the peace and stability of the religious and Jewish establishment. The Jewish religious leaders had no choice but to have Peter and John arrested, falsely arrested. What were they arrested for? The next day, we see there's a trial. And we pick this up in in Acts chapter 4. The rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priests, and even members of the high priest family are all summoned to deal with this crisis. And Peter is brought before them and again boldly speaks the truth to power of his day in Acts chapter 4 verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Now the council's boxed in. The miracle is absolutely undeniable. But the message of a risen Christ is absolutely intolerable. This message constituted a threat to peace and, frankly, to their positions. And if it had not been that the people were behind Peter and uh, John at the time, I believe they would have suffered the same fate that their Lord had suffered. So in the end, though, the council realizing they really couldn't do much more than this, they could only admonish Peter and John. And we read in Acts 4.18, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And this is the glorious beginning of Christian civil disobedience. There is God-given limits on all of human authority. Religious, civil, and familial. And no one, let me say it again, no one can lawfully tell you not to obey God. In the next chapter, we'll see things heat up even more, and Peter is arrested, and then he makes this point very explicit when he's on trial. We must obey God rather than men. No one has the right to command you not to share the gospel, or for that matter, to forsake the weekly corporate gathering of the church for the public worship of God. Thus we are here. Humble disobedience to God in a way that is trying to be thoughtful and accommodates the concerns of people that are vulnerable. Thank you for demonstrating faithfulness to Christ when many churches are cowering in unbiblical submission. We are a people under orders. We are people obligated to the everlasting king and the eternal lawmaker and judge of the world. This is the showdown of history. Is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? Where do we get our rights from? God or human governments? Who calls the shots? God and his law or arbitrary man-made law? Are we a nation under God or are we a nation under men? 
So how are we to respond to these in our day who make threats against the church? Well, let's see, what did the church do? Note, by the way, their threats were not minimized. They didn't spiritualize them away. The church took these threats very seriously, and I'm afraid sometimes uh, we're not as sober as we ought to be. What did they do? They responded. Let me say, and here's your second point. Prayer is our first response. Prayer is our first response. And when they heard it, we read in Acts chapter 4, 24, they lifted up their voices together to God. That's the very first thing that you do. Now, prayer isn't the only thing that we can do, but it should be the very first thing to which we resort. Notice the apostles didn't organize uh, a protest. They didn't threaten to sue. They didn't hire a PR firm to spin their message. By the way, there are times for asserting our rights in court and for redressing our government for grievances in protest, and I've done both of them. But you first start with prayer. They knew their true help was ultimately found in God, and God did answer them mightily. Do we really believe that our never-changing God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do we believe that he is active among his people today just as, as much as he ever was? Or have you ever heard your say, yourself say this, and I'm guilty of this, well, all we can do now is pray. What? All you can do now is pray? Church, oh church, remember from whence you came. Remember before Christ's ascension to God's right hand, he ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, even the blessed Holy Spirit. 120 members of the new Israel knew exactly what they ought to do. This is where the church began, in a 10-day upper room marathon prayer meeting. Now what would happen if your pastor said, we're going to have a 10-day prayer meeting, you're not going to go to work, We're going to lock ourselves in, and we're going to pray for 10 days. I wonder, that might be an exciting thing to do. But that's the beginning of the church. They began on their face before God. And I believe it's prayer-bathed, spirit-empowered proclamation that God uses and will use to shake this world. Have you got better tools than the ones which God has given us? It's an interesting thing when you read through the book of Acts. There's virtually an equal number of sermons and prayers recorded in Acts. Let me ask you, are you wielding your mighty weapons? Thirdly, effectual prayer is rooted and grounded in God's sovereignty. And so the church is confronted with with this crisis. They call out to God. And they say something, and I, I, you may have known this, Andy, but uh, Pastor Andy, but man, I, I found this exciting. And they cried out and said, Sovereign Lord. Do you know what the Greek word there is? Despota. Huh? Despota. God is seen here by the early church in his absolute full authority. He is the divine despot of all creation. He is the sovereign 
king over all. And the, our triune God inherently has all rights and all title to rule and reign over his creation. Now, I don't know about you. When I hear the word despot, I don't get all warm and fuzzy. Do you? Because why? Human despots, as we've seen them, are all a bunch of murderous thugs. But not our divine despot. He is absolutely holy and righteous and just and merciful and loving. Frankly, some people hate the idea of God as despot because they want to hold on to their sense of pretended autonomy. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But the title despot was a comfort to a suffering church, to a suffering people. And this staggering name shows up in scriptures in other interesting places. In Luke chapter 2, you remember the story of Simeon, the faithful man of God who was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the Messiah to be born. And when, and when he saw Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to be presented in the temple, this is what he cries out in Luke chapter 2, 29. He says, Lord, despota, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, Simeon saw God's sovereignty on magnificent display in the fulfillment of prophecy. The promised Messiah had come and Jesus lived that perfect life for his people and died on the cross to pay the penalty for their sin. And he rose triumphant from the grave and is now seated at God's right hand. And all who trust in Christ will be saved by his righteousness and no power of hell, as we sing, and no scheme of man could have stopped it from happening. And Simeon saw that in baby Jesus. One of the titles that is ascribed to God in heaven is despota. In Romans chapter 6, we, or Revelation chapter 6, we see this beautiful story, a picture unfolding of the worship in heaven. And then we see something a little bit odd, that the martyrs from under the altar, and I'll let Pastor Andy explain that to you, cry out. Listen to what they say. They say, O Sovereign Lord, despota! In heaven they saw God for who He was, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell in the earth? God is sovereign in the administration of His justice on behalf of His people. All the enemies of God will be judged in due time. And this is a great comfort to God's suffering people. Did you know the New Testament teaches that Jesus is despota? Interesting. Confirming, of course, his divinity. We see this in Jude chapter 4. There was a group of heretics in the church that were coming in and corrupting the church and, and turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And we read this in Jude 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were destined for condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only despota, our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we rejoiced this evening in our triune God, who is despota over all things. And this ought to elicit within us I think simultaneously two things. It should bring great comfort, but it should also be very sobering. This is the God we serve. 
turn the page in Book of Acts, and you, the next story you read is the story about Ananias and Sapphira. What happened to those liars? God cut them down, and the Bible says fear came upon the church. There's a lack of reverence of God and the fear of God in the church, and because of that, in the culture. But the early church knew who God truly was and honored him as such. And from this exalted view of God as despotah, then they begin their prayer. Let's see how effectual prayer is rooted in knowing who God truly is. First of all, we see God as the sovereign creator. Verse 24, they cry out to God, uh, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, because I'm not averse to controversy, let's, let's just say it. This is a clearly an, uh, an allusion to the book of Genesis and their understanding that God is the creator. Can you imagine that in the church that's up for debate today? Christians, by definition, are creationists, not evolutionists. These are mutually exclusive. You can't, and don't play games with this thing called theistic evolution. It's not true. It's a lie. Did you know evolution had been taught for hundreds of years by the Greeks long before Christ ever showed up? So it's interesting, when the Apostle Paul then is in Athens and he's confronting the Greek philosophers of his day, particularly the Epicureans, who were evolutionists, Paul begins this way in Acts 17. I proclaim to you God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he gives life to all breath and to all things. Christ and his apostles took the creation account at face value. Let me ask you, are you smarter than Jesus? Are you wiser than Jesus? Why are you playing games with this kind of heresy creeping into the church? There are so many theological implications. If there is no creator who created man and if there's not a true first Adam, then there's no covenant of works. If there's no first Adam and no covenant of works, then there's no second Adam and covenant of grace. You eviscerate the entire message of the Bible with this evolution foolishness. And the church confronted it, and we need to confront it in our day. By God's grace through faith, the Bible tells us we know that God creates, upholds, and governs his world. And God-suffering people are comforted to know that God is the creator and governor and judge of all. And he who made the universe promises to hear and answer our prayers when we come to him in the name of Jesus. So God is our sovereign creator, and God is the sovereign redeemer who preserves his own. In in Acts 4.25, the prayer continues, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Oh, church, there's a lesson here for us today. Can, can you hang with me a little bit longer? Okay. The church begins prayer in the most awesome way by invoking Psalm 2. From the very beginning, 
The church of Jesus Christ understood that the book of Psalms was their covenant prayer book. And you need to know that too. 41% of the quotes in the New Testament are from the book of Psalms, more than any other book from the Old Testament. But you, ha- you have to rightly understand these Psalms. When you, when you read the prayers in the Psalms, and I want to encourage you, pray through the Psalter. I, I aspire to, I don't do it every month, but I try to pray through the Psalter every month. Because let the, the Word of God inform your prayer life. And God has given us this prayer book, but you must read them as a Christian, and you must read them in accordance with the spirit of prophecy. Now I hope you can hang with me on this. When we're reading the book of Psalms, we're not peering over David's shoulder reading his prayer journal. Okay? We're not, you know, reading somebody else's mail. David uniquely anticipated. David uniquely foreshadowed. David uniquely even prophesied of a greater king. Who is that king? Jesus. And when he was in his anointed office as king, he was effectively the forerunner of the great king. He was the, when he's praying in the Psalms, he is the forerunner of Jesus who is our great intercessor at the right hand of God. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus was perfectly a man after God's heart. So in the Psalms, Jesus prayed through David by the spirit of prophecy. And so these psalms are nothing less than the inspired intercessions of Christ. Jesus is the innocent one. He is the blessed man of Psalm 1, in whom is the word of God. As you read through the psalms, he's the one who suffers to redeem his people. He is the one who has the right to invoke God's justice on his enemies. To pray the Psalms are right, we must not pray them like they're our personal devotions. They are expressions of our King. And our King is engaged in a mission, in a spiritual war. And He is going forth conquering and to conquer. And this is our prayer manual. This is our battle manual for prayer if we're going to pray effectually. Cornelius Van Til, everybody... Nobody knows who that is. You should know who this. One of the greatest theologians of the last century said this. It is, it is at all times a part of the task of the people of God to destroy evil. Once we see this, we do not, for instance, have to apologize for the imprecatory or the judgment prayers that we find in the Psalms, rather, we glory in them. You'd be surprised how many people are embarrassed by the Bible these days. This is God's Word. Every word. Every jot and tittle. All Scripture is inspired and is profitable. Are you afraid to stand where Jesus stood? On the Scriptures. Psalm 2 that we read was quoted 17 times in the New Testament. And it reveals King Jesus as the reigning divine Son of God. And now let's come back to our story. And Psalm 2 is speaking about these little petty 
tyrants who think that they can shake their fist at God and prevail. And the church saw in what was happening to them, that's exactly what's going on to them. They have these petty little Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem opposing God and His Son. Psalm 2. Let's read it. Verse 5. And then He, the Father, will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for Me, I have set My King, and we know who that is, Jesus, on Zion, My holy hill. Then God warns them. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath is kindled. And then it ends with a benediction and a blessing upon God's people. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So the church understood exactly how to pray. They went right to the book of Psalms. They knew right where to pray. They understood they were serving the sovereign, divine Despota, the sovereign creator and ruler of all. God the Son is risen and ruling and reigning as Messiah. And the church knew that the covenant-keeping God who redeemed them by His grace would not forsake them in the theater of spiritual warfare. And one day we will see all of God's enemies either converted or condemned. So by God's grace today, All who trust in Him will never be put to shame, the Scripture teaches. By God's grace today, we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And by God's grace today, we have overcome this world even by our faith. And even if we must die for Him, it is to our everlasting gain. We're to live as Christ, to die as gain. And if we do this right, we get a martyr's crown. Amen? Is that the Jesus you came to serve? Is that the Jesus that captured your heart? Is that the Jesus that is worthy of coming out on on a weeknight to, on a, a weekend night to worship? Absolutely. That's why we're here. And then finally, God is the sovereign redeemer who acts victoriously. Verse 27. Now, they're continuing to pray. For in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Now, just an interesting point. Have you noticed what Jesus does? Uh, Jesus has a wonderful way of unifying people. He unifies his people together uh, with him, but he also unifies the devil's crowd. You notice how that is? People that don't like each other, don't get along with each other, will get together to oppose Christ and His people and His church. The spirit of Antichrist drives all of Satan's slaves to resist Christ and His people. By the way, you may have noticed on the news, now the protesters are burning the Bible. Did you notice that? Why? Because they know where the real battle lies. It's a battle between God and Satan. And they want their Marxist, atheistic, godless, and as we know from history, vicious, merciless way. And that's what it, that's, at least to their credit, they, they showed the truth. They, the devil's crowd knows where the real struggle is. 
but Christ's enemies, as united as they can ever want to be, cannot frustrate God's plan. Because notice the next verse. Remember, they, may, they think they're all on their own, shaking their fist at God. But notice what verse 28 says. Yeah, to do only whatever your hand, God, what God's hand, right? And your plan had predestined to take place. Huh? All these people that came together to crucify our Lord and to, to, to destroy the work that He had begun unwittingly was working out God's greater plan. They facilitated their own demise. Yes, they're morally responsible. They did it willfully. They, nobody put a gun against their head. They are willfully uh, culpable. No one coerced them. Yet, it was the plan of God before the foundation of the world. Can I encourage you, church? The world's not out of control. Jesus has not abdicated his throne. He is still the sovereign Lord, and he's still working out his predestined plan, and we read it in Psalm 2. What is that plan? That the nations of the world will become the inheritance of our Christ. And nobody, nowhere, no how, can stop that from happening. God frustrates his enemies. Now, this is how to pray biblically. Verse 29. And now, Lord, the church prays, look upon their threats. I think it's important that we do that. We need to call out our enemies. But notice what they do. They leave vengeance in the hands of God. Vengeance is mine, the Bible says. They didn't, and by the way, you'll see, they just move on from that. They didn't really focus on it. They just affirmed who God was, affirmed the threats, and said, Lord, you take care of them. You see, you see the threats they're making. And, and they left the vengeance in God's hands to be brought about in due time. You see, in the, in this world, the civil magistrate will one day be accountable to God. Remember, in the founding era, you couldn't even be a, an elected official unless you were a believer. Because you had to have the fear of God. You had to know that you were being held accountable. But in this case, the civil leaders had become the enemies of God. And now are not to be obeyed. And so the church is starting to resist So how does the church resist? This is the prayer, and I want us to close with this. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So you see what happened. When we put God in his proper place, we see him for who he truly is. We put man in his proper place on his face before a holy God. And we even see God's enemies in perspective of where they are. Now we can see the world correctly and we can pray aright. And when we do that, interestingly enough, The Holy Spirit shows up. Do we think the Holy Spirit can show up tonight? I do. You think the Holy Spirit can embolden us tonight? I do. If we will see God for who He is and see ourselves in our need of Him 
and ask for the power and the boldness of the Holy Spirit to come upon us, we are and will be transformed. Our fears will be replaced with boldness, and the boldness is to bear witness to Jesus. Some preach Jesus we read throughout the Bible out of their own gifts and, and they were, they were preaching out of their pride and, and the flesh. We even read in one passage, one group of people were just preaching to stir up trouble for Paul. Then others we read were preaching for worldly gain. God help them. A church that humbly cries out to the sovereign Lord of the church, I believe, can have the same effect that the early church had in their day. If we confess that we can only make a difference, that we can only accomplish God's will, we can only do what he wants us to do by his power in us, then we can be the witness that God has called us to be. And the world is needing it desperately. So as we close today, I want to lead us in prayer. And let's pray that God the Holy Spirit would come and fill us. Now, I'm assuming you're a Christian If you're here and you haven't made Jesus Christ your Lord and you have not affirmed your need of forgiveness of sin and you have not put your faith and trust in him alone, this prayer isn't going to do much for you. You need to get saved. You need to ask Jesus to convert you and to change your heart. And if you're here and you have not done that, now would be a good time to say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I receive the gift of eternal life that you offer me in Jesus Christ. And it's that simple. I turn from my sin. And I seek to serve you for the rest of my life. If that's in your heart, that means the Lord's doing a work of conversion. If you haven't done that, I pray the Spirit would give you that. But let's go right now to the throne of grace and invite the Holy Spirit to come. Lord, we read these stories in the book of Acts and uh, our hearts burn because we know that Jesus is still the same King. He's the same Lord. Holy Spirit, you're the same Spirit that was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Lord, it's the same Holy Spirit that has regenerated us and made us alive in Christ. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, would you come tonight? Lord, we want to be those faithful witnesses. We want to see the world turned upside down for Christ. And Lord, we repent of cowardice. We repent of being ashamed. We repent of uh, capitulating and, and not bearing witness to Christ out of the fear of men. Lord, would the fear of God grip us? May we realize that we will stand before you. And Lord, we will give an account of our lives. And Lord, even though we're saved by grace, Lord, you are so gracious that you will reward us as we demonstrate courage, as we step out in faith, as we, as we do the will of God that you put in our heart to do, Lord, we wouldn't want to do it except that you changed us. And so, Lord, now by that same spirit that changed our heart, Lord, would you empower us to make Christ known to a fallen world? to a hurting world. Lord, there's so many people out there that are afraid right now, afraid of death, afraid of this pandemic. Give us opportunities, Lord, to bring the gospel to them. Help us to be able to love our neighbor in the most important way that we can by praying for their immortal soul and bringing them the everlasting gospel. Lord, help us 
as a church to bring glory to your name in the midst of this trying time. Lord, if they could do it in the face of life and death, Lord, certainly we can do it in the face of the petty little things that we are confronting as your people here in America. Lord, have mercy upon us and embolden us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.